We put our energy towards adjusting the external circumstances of our lives. Things come together, they fall apart, they come back together, and so on. And we keep tinkering, but despite our best efforts, there always seems to be unfinished business. And then, someone comes along with a teaching of meditation or dharma, and we meet with a radically different approach to life. We stop trying to fix everything. We turn inwards and start to work with, or play with, perception. And then, everything begins to change. Brought to you by Meditate with Ranga, Playing with Perception invites you to open to the theater of experience and play. Welcome everyone to Playing with Perception. And today I'm very excited because I have two guests that uh, I really feel indebted to and, and really so much gratitude towards. So today we're joined by Willa Reed and Elizabeth Day, uh, who I met last October uh, on, a, on a two week meditation retreat at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center on the West Coast of the US. Um, and, you know, I've said this before to both of you, uh, I think via email, but that retreat really changed my life. And I was reflecting today, actually, on, on how much in the chitta is different, how much in my life and just my sense of things is different from that retreat. So really, uh, I'm so grateful to be joined by both of you. And, um, you know, I was thinking about what I wanted to say as an introduction, and I tend to be long winded. So I wanted to be brief here. And, and just to mention that, you know, throughout the course of this retreat, there were so many times where I was sitting in the, in the meditation hall and just feeling such a sense of awe and wonder at, at the teachings that were being provided. And I can sense maybe Willa might be uneasy <laughs> with, with praise, <laughs> but there were two, two things in particular that I remember. One was Eliza um, gave a teaching on the Buddha's first sermon, the turning of the wheel. One, one evening uh, towards the beginning of the retreat, as I recall. And it's a story, a sutta that I've heard many times throughout my life, but something about what was shared really moved me. And, and I remember, you know, you spoke about the energy that was sort of, uh, you know, that came from that first sermon and how all the devas and the brahmas and throughout the realms of existence, you know, that, that, that was felt and the earth quaked. And I felt such a sense of like how precious it is to be human in this world, uh, in a world where a Buddha arose and taught. And, and that was, it was so helpful. So I wanna thank you for that. Um, and there was also an evening in which uh, Willa talked about some stories from her life and in particular, one evening uh, on, on a Vesak day many years ago where she sat beneath the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya that, that really moved me. Um, so th these are just a couple things that, that come to my mind when I think of both of you. And uh, I'll, I'll pause there, but thank you so much for joining me. And yeah, I'd love to start by just asking <laughs> how things are going, what's new, you know, what's your day-to-day -day like since, since we last met? It's a pleasure to be with you, Ranga, just to say. Yeah. yeah. Remember you fondly from that retreat. 
-hmm. It does seem a long time ago from our present day life. What's your everyday life? <laughs> well, yeah, Cloud Mountain's very dear to both of our hearts. It's a really beautiful place to go and practice. It is that the kind of holding field is so present, beautiful trees, the way the team at Cloud Mountain look after things. So, yeah, it's, it was really lovely to be there with you and the others and to be able to really reflect on the Dhamma and such a supportive place. And right now we're sitting in our own meditation place and that's really beautiful too. So now we're... Lots been happening in terms of Dhamma practice and in terms of our own lives. You know, my dad's been very, very unwell, but is now improving, and my life has been overseeing a mum. So we're kind of weaving our our Dhamma, our allegiance to the Dhamma in with our duty to family, to our lives generating a livelihood mm. yeah i'm just back from visiting my family in australia <clears throat> I, I have work that i do that keeps me busy um, and uh, here we are in autumn or fall so it's starting to get a little bit cooler um, but it's that just at that moment where the trees are turning and there's a lot of beauty around which is a kind of um a way of like an anesthetic to ease into the cold months ahead <laughs> <laughs> Mm, well, thank you for, for catching me up. And I hope both your families are doing well and whatever health issues are there, I hope they you know are taken care of quickly. Um, well, we, my dear old dad got COVID pneumonia and I spent a couple of weeks in hospital. What was really remarkable is just see the amount of care he got and just the amount of work that's happened in the, in the whole planet really that it the knowledge of how to look after them was so advanced and you thought, wow just to be in a, a field where they can actually bathe in the collective inquiry that's gone on even just on something like a you know, health thing it's just mm. so yeah he's doing well he's back in his own house it'll be a while till he's working in his garden again but mm. <laughs> Hmm. precious mm. yeah well i'm glad to hear that he's doing a bit better and yeah what you shared it reminds me of the last time i was in a hospital and i had surgery and it was a it was a not a big procedure but uh throughout the course of 24 hours i remember counting that there were 30 people in total that did something for me you know and just feeling such a sense of gratitude um yeah, and being taken care of. So yeah, thank you for interesting you say that. Interesting you say that, Ranga. I <clears throat> I was in hospital last year for a minor procedure too. It was actually to have a little skin cancer removed hmm. and a skin graft put on. So I was lying there and the, the surgeon's kind of <clears throat> looking down on my face and I'm looking up at him. <laughs> and I said, I'm so glad when you grew up, you wanted to be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> there are people who can do this and that, and that there's an anaesthetist somewhere in all of this as well. So because um, you really, that's when you really, one of the places you can really feel your, your physical vulnerability, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And the interdependence with others, the goodwill of others. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's funny how in life you can start to see Dhamma everywhere, right? It's, it's one of the beautiful things. Yeah. Great. Well, to start, as you know, I have a, a few quick questions on your favorites. Um, so <laughs> uh, actually, well, let's start with your, your favorite sutta. I know this is really difficult, but if you could if tell, tell me about a favorite sutta and maybe why it, it, it strikes you. So I guess I have to say the Anapanasati sutta, yeah? Mm. If I had to just pick one, because it has the whole, I mean, they, most of them have a whole path there, but it's so profound. And it's such a profound practice path into really deeply understanding the kundas, the, the way the sense of me arises, understanding perception, feeling, form, consciousness. So, and it's something I'm working with every day. But of course, there are thousands leap to mind. Like if you ask me, in a way, one of my but a favorite is the discourse on the elements and the potter shed. Mm. And it's one would have sits in the magic line. That's because it's so beautiful. It has this profound sense of what it was like to be in the presence of the Buddha and the kind of compassion of it. And then the, the teaching you know, on the kind of foundations of peace. Wow. Mm. But yeah, and then also sing out a sutra. And I mean, I could go on and on, really, because there's such a wealth <coughs> and at different times there, powerful medicine to, for you know what's happening in my own heart, my chitta. So, but yeah, it's a bit like what's your favorite food? Well, it would have to be rice, wouldn't it? Is a bit what's your favorite food? It would drink, it would have to be water. You know, these things that are just the foundation of what you eat and drink. And I'd say Anapanasati is a pretty foundational discourse along with the turning of the wheel of all noble truths. But yeah. <laughs> it lies a well, you know, I'm an enthusiast. So when, <laughs> whenever I'm asked about a favorite, I have this kind of crash of hundreds of things going it's on. A, it's a game we play. So what's your favorite song? <laughs> and it's agonizing. <laughs> <laughs> Response takes a while. So I'll keep this one for you. But, you know, when Willa talks about the Anapanasati Sutta, it's like, oh, yeah, of course that's a sutta because it's just the. I don't know. I don't want to say the bread and butter. It's it's the center of the of my practice as well. Um, I forget to think of it as a sutra among many. Uh, but when you ask that, there are about four or five that jumped in at the same time for different reasons. Um, the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, because you you mentioned that earlier, is is just there's just something about the um, the power of that. That it has all of the teachings in it, really, doesn't it? And it's this generativity and the hope and the possibility and the sense that we're all absolutely connected into well there are these world systems that are all um moving in this generativity uh, and uh, you know a sense of what the goal is and how it's possible and the celebration you know of the first of the five 
if that's it, you know, and so on. That's it does really stir stir me into my blood and bone. Um, but there's also um, Sariputta's teaching to Anattapindika that's, again, got all the teaching in it. And there's something for me, I, I'm a lover of precision and clarity in the teachings. It's actually what drew me to the Theravadan. I'd also been to some teachings, some Zen, some Tibetan teachings, Vajrayana, all of them beautiful in their own way. But there's something for me about the clarity and precision. And that sutta has that power and beauty and the love of Sariputta for Anattapindika comes through and the, the compassion and the possibility as you're um, you know, leaving this birth, you know, as death arises, what to, you know, how the focus can make all the difference. So there's something about that. And even the after part, at the, the epilogue of that sutta, um, where, the, where the Buddha sort of tests them, you know, tests an under, I think it is, the Davids have said, you know, oh, there's this light of of extraordinary light and beauty in the in the assembly, and um, and under guesses that it was another Pindika. There's there's something about how all of that works together. The 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 kind of personal elements of these stories, the legacy of someone like Ananda Pindika with his goodness, and and so on. And there are there are so many suttas. The, the ones, you know, Angulimala, where the Buddha's mm -hmm. um, profound heart qualities enable him to just stop in the face of this, you know, mass murderer and really walk his talk and the, and the profound effects of that. So those are a few. Uh, mm. On a different day, perhaps there'd be a different answer. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so lovely just to sit here and listen to, to both of your reflections. Um, on these suttas, and and actually, I have a follow up question for for each of you on on what you just related. Um, <clears throat> in terms of what stuck out to me, Willow, when you're talking about the mindfulness of breathing sutta, um, you know, for our viewers who may not be familiar with that term, you, you spoke about the sense of self arising, and I think that's maybe something that's not always apparent to folks as they read that sutta, not always apparent to me. So, could you maybe explain that a little bit? In a way, the the whole sutra is taking us through a process, you know, a process of um, letting awareness collect inwardly and rest into the loveliness and life-giving properties of the breath, yeah? Because we know the Buddha's um, understanding of the power of breath meditation arose from his remembering the natural experience of this under the rose apple tree as a, as a young boy and the tremendous sense of happiness and well-being. Yeah? So the whole sutta is predicated on an understanding that breath is, is a natural experience that arises. Yeah, It's not something you have to do or get. And, and the way the sutta is laid out is the sense of establishing kind of uprightness, a presence here and now, establishing mindfulness, a sense of mind, it's completely present here and now. Now, for many of us, that might take five or 10 years to get to that place, yeah? yeah. So mm -hmm. it's a process. And then the capacity just to be here and actually with the awareness completely receptive 
knowing that breathing was happening. And the in this process, because there's tremendous letting go of self in that, we've already uh, been asked to give up all greed and grief for the world here, even temporarily. So the way we usually spin experience that's been put down at the time of this practice, and we're just present, allowing this natural process to deepen a sense of well-being for the awareness to come collect, to come out of fragmentation and stress, yeah? So it has this process of really softening and coming out of a you know, leaning out, getting, having, grasping into coming upright in heart, just here, receptive. Yeah. So this experience itself is already softening. And we're asked to understand what conditions the body, which is the breath. So we see the experience of the body is actually not us, it's actually a conditioned experience. And this same understanding of process and conditionality is woven through the whole sutta. What conditions the pitta, our relationship to feeling and perception. So they're not there explicit, they're in the implicit experience of it, in the sense that we're working with the conditioners of the body, with the conditioners of the chitta, and then with the nature of awareness itself. Yeah. And as we see the conditionality that the experience here in the heart is affected by the feeling of perception, like we, we're asked to really come into the loveliness of the breath, the life-giving properties of the breath. I'm not focusing here, but into a whole receptivity, we start to see that this experience that I thought was me was actually a conditioned, shifting experience. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And on and on. I mean, at the end of it, of course, the Buddha says that one who has understood this has understood the five kundas, really has understood um, the full foundation of mindfulness, has really really brought fully into presence the practice of enlightenment. And so the sense this is a whole powerful process. And in it we understand form, feeling, perception, the kind of intending intentional qualities of the mind and consciousness, awareness. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think it's a lovely place to sort of start this interview. Yeah, thank you. And Eliza, one of the things that really stood out uh, to me listening to, to you speak about the turning of the wheel, the Buddha's first sermon, you talked about this, you know, seeing the goal and feeling the possibility of it. And... Uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about how, A, so many people may not have that goal in mind or really have some mm -hmm. sort of clear a clear picture of what that goal might be, um, even any way of really conceiving of it. And then more, moreover, how the possibility, possibility of it seems to be something that people ha are losing faith in, you know, and I imagine this, at least in my experience, some people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and 
Um, I actually, I, I went on retreat at a monastery uh, for a few weeks after we, after our retreat or your retreat. And there was a sense of some of the teachers not having faith in lay people attaining to this, you know, this goal. And so it, it's, it's been something that's been in my heart a lot is like, how possible is this? Um, I have a lot of faith in that, but I feel that so many Buddhists around the world sort of don't. And I was doing some market research uh, when I, or a friend of mine was doing some market research for me when I got into this meditation space. And according to what uh, we read, Asian Americans were less likely to practice meditation than any other demographic group in America, mm -hmm. um, which actually lines up with my, my uh, experience with Sri Lankan Americans, for example. Anyway, that was very long-winded, but maybe you could say a few words about you know, that idea of the goal and the possibility of it and, and how you read that sutta. Yeah, sure. I'm just sitting with some sadness hearing what you're describing, actually, and some bewilderment um, around some of the, the, t the teachings that, that actually, rather than pointing to the goal, lead away from it, perhaps, or, or diminish one's um, conviction that this is possible. Um, in my life, I've I've been more trained in the humanities, and, and I've been less task oriented or goal oriented. So what I'm about to say <laughs> may sound odd in that way, but without the goal, I don't see the point of practice. <laughs> There'll be short term benefits for sure, and maybe some longer term um, benefits. But this path is a. On the one hand, it's it's simple in its conception. But it's not easy necessarily, is it? It's not easy at all. And so what helps us get through the peaks and the troughs of our, and the plateaus and then the troughs of our practice, um, if not a, a, a sense of the possibility? And sometimes we get that through um, people that we're around who we've seen um, enough to know that their practice is fruited. Um, we can be inspired by that. Um, or from a taste, one's own taste. Um, you know, in the Theravadan teachings, there are, there are these four stages, aren't they? And so um, our teacher, Achan Chah, have, has said um, in, in various ways that um, if you've been practicing intensely and, you know, with sincerity for about five years, um, you, you would have had every chance of at least entering the stream of done the first stage. Uh, not only is it possible it's it's there are people all around the world who've experienced these these stages and so um you know doubt is one of the hindrances right mm -hmm. you know and 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 doubt is is resolved variously by engaging in the teachings and the practice and and being around wise friends and and inquiring so if we're around um, people who are undermining a sense of our capacity to reach mm -hmm. the goal, then it's really important to rethink how we, where we place ourselves, I, I think. There's a lot at stake. Um, you know, in the Dharma Chakapavatana Sutta, that's, if that's about nothing else, it's about precisely the hope of that, you know, that sense of, of um, the, the reflection on impermanence, on the khandas, on not-self, and then... Pandanya gets it. Mm -hmm. He's got it. <laughs> it's been transmitted. Because we know when the Buddha, after the Buddha's awakening, as he's moving towards 
um, the Isipatana, the deer park outside of Varanasi. He runs across, or he walks, you know, he walks past a, um, I guess an Advaita practitioner, uh, um, some kind of wanderer, and kind of says, you know, I'm a summer sambuddha. When he's asked why so, why are you so luminous? What what have you been doing? You know, well, <laughs> as it happens, I've just awakened completely. <laughs> um, and this wanderer's like, mm, yeah, okay, well, go well. Uh, so then by the time the Buddha gets to his his five ascetic friends um, who'd rejected him uh, when he changed tack in his practice, he's intent on, on sharing this. He's been invited by the deva out of compassion to teach. It wasn't his first movement. I know you know all of this. And so anyway, with this compassion in his heart and the connection and bond with those practitioners, they've been through very hard times together, he starts to teach them and Kondanya gets it. I mean, that's the beginning of setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. You know, it didn't take long for Kondanya to get it. And it didn't take long for the others to get it to the point of stream entry and then to the point of arahantship. Mm. So, um, of course, it's not about measuring how long it takes. And we don't have necessarily a sum of some Buddha around at the moment to, to be with. Uh, but we have the teachings. We have teachers who have awakened to at least one of these stages. Um, there are examples in the forest tradition of arahants. I take a lot of inspiration from their practices, um, the practices of people around me. Uh, but I guess we've got to ask ourselves again and again, you know, what is this? What is this birth? Those very existential questions that a lot of us have when we're children, actually, even if we don't have, you know, the kind of discourses and frameworks for posing them, we sort of have this in in internal sense of what, what, what the hell is this all about? How did I get here? What's it for? Um, I remember that very strongly when I was about eight or nine, sitting on the end of my bed. Um, I had a little, little coloured keyboard beside me and um, I had a wig on. I must have felt like a beetle or something, one of the beetles. <laughs> and, um, but that was all, I, I put all that aside and I could just see myself sitting there going, hmm. So the first humans, okay, that's, okay, so where did they come from? So anyway, at some point, let's assume they're humans. And what do they have? They have nothing. They've got, what do they do? What are the first things they do? Get, get clothes, get food, get shelter. Then what? You know, and that question stayed with me. It's like, what do, you, what do you do and why? What moves or motivates you to do whatever it is that you do? How did we get here? What's working? What's not working? You know, I think there's, there's, there's a, a level of sincerity that's needed in, in the inquiry. And then, you know, trusting where trust is well-placed. Um, one of the things that really supported me, and I know it's the same for many people from a, a Western uh, mindset is that this isn't asking, we're not being asked to believe anything. Let's try it out, try it and see. And you do, don't you? You start to practice and you start to see some, some results, you know, with generosity, you start to feel everything opening up a bit. You know, we're practicing the precepts. You start to feel a kind of deep wellness mm -hmm. and a feeling 
of all rightness, of goodness. And that is, um, you know, generative of the path. And, you know, you cultivate and even if for a moment you feel a bit of peace and ease, oh, okay. And so you start to follow, you start to, to keep going with it. Um, in the suttas, there's, there are so many suttas where the Buddha reflects on the, the stage of awakening of the person who is just taught. Um, I'm no fundamentalist, but I'd find it hard to believe that all of this isn't possible if I'm if I'm taking these teachings to heart, practicing them, finding they work. Um, I, I just, yeah, I don't even begin to understand how the goal, how nibbana, the possibility of complete freedom from suffering, can disappear from um, from teachings. I'm thinking about people who are doing the teaching. Um, as to the predicament of South Asian Americans, Sri Lankan Americans, uh, it's it's sad to hear that they practice meditation the least when it's such a um, such a heritage in Sri Lanka. And when I first started to practice, it was with Sri Lankans, mm. and they brought me up in the Dhamma. These older Sri Lankan people who were so sincere. And when we were on it, we went to a pilgrimage to India and onward to Sri Lanka, where our teacher had been, um, had headed up the forest hermitage there in Kandy. He took us to some caves and some areas where he had practiced. And I remember chanting, doing some chanting at um, Anuradhapura. Is that what it's called? Sorry, I've forgotten the, the name. Uh, Anuradhapura. Anuradhapura, thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> and some of my Sri Lankan, um, you know, Dharma friends chanting so beautifully. And I said to them, well, it's going to take to learn how to do this chanting. You've all grown up with it. How wonderful. And they said, well, we grew up doing it rote. So some of us didn't know what it meant until, um, you know, very recently coming to Australia um, because the rest of us were, were wanting to know it in translation. So I guess it's there's something about the benefits, and it, I see parallels with Christianity in, in, in Eurocentric countries, that there are benefits as well as losses of having a long-term entrenched priesthood um, mm. where, where the hierarchies can mean that knowledge and practice belongs with, with one group. Um, you know, I don't know if that reflects at all the situation for Strikens in America, but I'm just hoping that there's... Now that there's some market research done and some interest in that, that, that there's some interventions <laughs> and support because I think um, coming out of Southeast Asian Buddhist countries, East Asian, South Asian Buddhist countries, there's um, there's a lot more ground for picking up the practice and going deeply in. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. I'm very moved by by what you shared and I'm glad you gave a shout out to the Sri Lankans in a positive manner <laughs> so that so that well, they could we we both I mean all my Dhamma practice major same as Liza it's been out of the generosity of the Sri Lankan the Thai yeah. the Lao yeah Cambodian mm. on and on the, those who have a traditional love and appreciation of the teaching mm -hmm. have meant that there are monasteries or practice places. So we're deeply indebted mm -hmm. to these communities. And 
fortunately here in New Zealand and in Australia, I'm, I think you get a different stat. Mm -hmm. I think within the, yeah. the Sri Lankans, I know the love of the Dharma is, is really alive and well. Mm. So, you know, I have yeah. an image of Ranga. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's, it's a silly image, really, of a childhood storybook of the king sitting on a pile of gold, you know. Mm, where am I going to get a few bucks? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like raised in, in, in Buddhist countries, sitting on this pile of gold. It's, it won't take long to find the, the inheritance and spend it well. <laughs> yeah. It no, I love that image. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because I, I also... Uh, am in debt to so many Sri Lankans and uncles and aunties who who helped bring me in contact with deep dhamma, but there's also a sense, and Eliza used the word sadness. Like I, I have this sadness knowing that so many people that I know don't feel that nibbana is a possibility for them in this lifetime, um, who don't maybe even feel like samadhi is is necessarily a possibility for them in this lifetime. So there's, you know. A, there's a, a devotion, um, faith, but yet a sense of maybe the next birth, you know? Um, so that makes me sad. <laughs> and, uh, but I also know I, I, there, there's so much beauty in, in the community and I have a lot of hope and that's part of why I'm doing this whole project. And, and to pick up on what Lois is saying, I think one of the problems and one of the things we we're very aware of both in the monasteries coming out of them is that one of the big dangers is you get the sense that there are those who know mm -hmm. and those who don't mm -hmm. and in a way what I imagine is one of the ground for what you're talking about is the sense that there are those who hold the knowledge and have the capacity and we're looking after them mm -hmm. and the work of all of us is to see actually the Buddha gave us all hmm. the Four Noble Truths. You know, and we and we know in the suttas lay folk were waking up all over the place mm. in their thousands. Mm. And that continues today. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's it's the thing about the what I find so beautiful about it, and going back to what Willa mentioned, um when talking about the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha as an ascetic getting to the point of near death and just remembering that time under the rose apple tree during the harvest time, harvest ceremony, festival, that natural process of just being, being mm. with breathing, coming back to the natural state of mind as Abhaskaki calls it. And it's... And, and from there, his practice unfolded. Of course, he'd, he'd done a lot of um, preparation, hadn't he, But um, over lifetimes. But the recognition that there's a setting in motion, there's an organic process. It's not like each of us individually has to work this out um, conceptually and, and, or, or have some magical good you know, grace bestowed upon us. It's, it's an organic process. And once you start to put it in motion, it unfolds. Mm -hmm. It does require persistent effort, but it doesn't require any special talent or any special status. I mean, the, the Buddha, as far as we can discern from the suttas, the Buddha was working against the cultural um, 
entrenchments of caste in his day. One is not born a Brahmin, but by one's actions becomes a Brahmin, becomes noble. You know, that was radical back then, wasn't it? We could say the same thing here. One, one isn't born into um, monasticism or born into any um, awakened state. One, through one's actions and through one's practice, awakening is the possibility. So it, it, it's not about social status whatsoever. Or, or roles or power or authority. In fact, on the contrary, at times, you could say. Mm. Yes. And this is part of one of the things I wanted to get into with, with both of you, you know, the the possibility for lay people, you know, and um you know, Eliza, you were you were talking about how without the goal, you know. A, it's like, why are we doing this? And B, how far do we really go? And I really feel that conceiving of these goals that are very lofty, but to not put them as far away, sure, they might take effort, they may take a lifetime, maybe more, but somehow they're still possible. I feel that that's really important. And I also have sense for me how the image that I hold of, of an awakened being is is so important. And if that image for example, is wearing robes and has a shaved head and, and I'm not that, then there that again serves to put that distance there. And yeah, so I, I for me, when I think about Asian Americans, I think that's part of it is this sense of I, I'm not a monk and, and so therefore some of these attainments, even samadhi is not available to me. Um, and I really, really just don't feel that that's right. Um, which takes me actually to something that that Willa said and on retreat. And I remember the first time I heard it, it, it went straight to the heart and felt like she was speaking directly to me. And my nature is usually to ask, like, hey, can you explain what you meant by that? Um, but for this one thing, I, I, I haven't asked. And it's that's allowed it to really flourish and, and grow for me. And that, that one statement was feel your authority in relation <laughs> to this process of waking up. Um, which even as I, as I think about that, it's, it's been such a protection, uh, as I've gone forth and received other teachings to feel my own place, uh, uh on that path. Maybe you can hear it in my voice, <laughs> how moved I am. So yeah, maybe if there's anything you want to say on that and, and where, where you came up with that. Well, yeah, it's like we talk about gold. I find that a tricky word mm. Um, mm. because we're actually talking about a process of letting go. Letting go of what does not belong and does not help. And it's not uh, true. Yeah. And if we recognize that it's not about accomplishing something so much as letting fall away what is harmful and unhelpful. Mm. Yeah, it has a totally different feeling in terms of our own capacity. Mm. It is possible for me to recognize, hey, this particular way of being or relating to experience is just bringing more confusion. And to, and to let that shift. Yeah. And that authority thing for me is really important for each of us to know, because it's about 
the first of the spiritual faculties, which is a sense of you know, it's sadha, which leaves that energy for the practice of confidence or conviction or sense of capacity, leading to the energy for the practice, which allows mindfulness to become fully developed, mind collect and gather and have the capacity for deep seeing. Yeah. So the first of that is to have that sense that, as Lies is saying, and we're here in the Dharma Chakra, the first sutta, it is possible. It is possible to let go of what gets in the way. And the other aspect of that, it's not only possible, but to it's possible here. Yeah, that we each have that capacity. And what I see a lot, particularly amongst the lay community, is the sense of, well, maybe some other time, some other place, somebody else, yeah? But actually there is only now, and there is only here, and there is only this chitta in this moment that I'm in contact with. And I have this strong sense that I often say to folks is, you don't know who you are. So we read about Buddha, Sariputta, Mughalana, these beings, lifetimes of cultivation. But unless you have the capacity, you don't know your own. Yeah. You may get glimpses of it in terms of the, you know, what's what you've become attracted or attuned to or where you find yourself what resonates with you, but you don't know. And maybe, Ranga, you've spent 40 lifetimes, 100, 1,000 lifetimes in robes practicing. Mm. So it's to me, it's to loosen up the sense and to go, well, in this moment, can I be with what is happening? Do I, do I know what is happening in this chitta? And from that, yeah. Yeah. Then I can discern is what somebody else is saying through helpful and experiment with it. Because I what I've been what I've seen over my years, people give their power away mm -hmm. all the time in everything. And unless you're sitting in your kind of uprightness and strength then, yeah, you're not capable. Because mm -hmm. you're kind of leaned over, you've given, you've given your authority away. And so I'm very pleased to hear to whatever extent you might have given it away, you're taking it back. Because mm -hmm. you need it. This is a practice that's about coming into what's true, yeah. isn't it? And I, you know, Willa's point about a goal. I mean, that's right. These are all words and language that we use. But there's there's a kind. What I find again and again is there's the importance of humility in the practice. So true authority and humility actually go together, don't they? Hmm. Yeah. If you want power over, forget it. <laughs> that's not going to take you anywhere. Um, if you give your power away equally, it's, you, you know, you're losing capacity. But this um, this sense of, of humility is what allows a kind of moving toward, if you want to put it that way, toward the goal without it being 
tendentious without some sense of, I want to get there. <laughs> I want to be an arahant. I want to be something because, of course, that's, um, you know, paradoxically wanting to be something, of course, never gets you to be something, um, at least in, in, a, in the sense of um, awakening. It's there, but there is a longing. And the longing, I mean, I would have said the Buddha had a longing to finally find the end of suffering, or, or you could call it motivation or conviction or faith, but something had to propel him out of the palace, out of his caste, into the life that he chose, where he's nearly dying from living on either literally or metaphorically a grain of rice, you know. Um, something has to propel you to, uh, to see the predicament that we're each in and the way out. So it's, it's a different orientation than I want to be a great spiritual being or, you know, some sense of attainment um, or identification. It's that, that fine balance, I, I believe, of a kind of base coming in touch with one's base goodness and well-being a recognition of the predicament of, that there is suffering, access to the teachings that we all have, that suffering has a cause, um, suffering ceases, and there's this pathway. That's enough. Hmm. That's enough to get going. And, you know, for very few people is the path swift and delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's often in those sort of, byways and low ways and no ways and dead ends that we can start looking around for excuses or well they can do it but I can't or hmm wrong path why don't I go back to sitting on the couch with a beer you know because <laughs> that at least you know whatever um it's it's when it gets tough I think that it's really important to have wise friends around to keep the supports going yeah thank you yeah a question that's arising as i listen is um from my own practice uh i, I remember after uh being on retreat with the both of you feeling you know just such a immense the, the beauty of of a new level of samadhi in my practice and just kind of swimming with this pleasure and it lasted for a couple months and then I remember at some point, a deep sadness arose in me. And uh, there wasn't any sense of a, a because or a reason. It just arose. And I remember first thinking like, oh, I thought I was past this. <laughs> you know? And But actually what I found is for, for me, as I see it, there's there's when, when the sadness or and for me sadness is particularly a, an emotion a flavor or hindrance that that i don't like um or at least in my history I have not liked but now it feels like when these things arise for me they're they're sort of calling me to let go more to open deeper um and my, my question is around does that ever end or is that is this a, an accurate conception of the path that somehow we over time learn to be more fully present with these things that are difficult? 
Um, or is it more of a path in which these things actually don't deepen, like sadness doesn't deepen and, and it becomes weaker and weaker gradually over time? I'm curious to hear your your conceptions, your experience on the path. Well, I, I can give it, might even seem a paradoxical answer. The capacity to be present with what is here gets greater and greater. The heart cultivation get the heart gets more capacity and possibility. And you know, I was talking to someone yesterday that I find the metaphor the Buddha gave about suffering and a teaspoon into a glass tastes very salty, but a teaspoon of salt into a lake is hardly discernible. So part of what's being cultivated is this, particularly through the Brahma Bihar, through really understanding that loving kindness, compassion, joy, evenness of heart are fundamental ground for the practice. And as these become more the dwelling places, then this teaspoon of suffering, dukkha, doesn't shake and stir in the same way can be discerned but it it's just like the heart can come around it in a in a pull away it's just it sadness arises depending on condition Sharon. and there are desperately sad things mm. going on yeah mm. and even the the fact that the heart's become more receptive and and less um, armored can mean that it actually can taste it more hmm. but it has more capacity with it but hmm. it's less personal hmm. it's not about me it's I, I had a very powerful experience once teaching um years back and we're in IMS and there's a hundred people more sitting in the hall and just sitting there and I think I was there, I don't see Tika was, I'm not sure if I was talking or he was teaching or an article, one of us, but I just felt, whoa, all the sadness coming through. And it's just a recognition of whose is it? Mm. In this field, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And just that not taking it personally, but actually knowing it, knowing it in the body, letting it wave through finding out what it needs, just not coming into contention with it at all. It's arisen, I may not know the conditions, and it's not a problem. Thank you. Yeah, it's very helpful. Yes, sadness, when you mentioned sadness, Ranga, I, I really resonated with that. Sadness is, is something I'm very familiar with. And um, it, I don't, would not consider sadness a hindrance at all. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, what we do with it when it arises, then, then that can be we can hold it with ill will, wish it away, judge ourselves, and then, and then there's the hindrances. But, but sadness arises. Um, there are many causes and conditions for sadness in this world. And I, what resonated for me was that I also had an experience after a, a retreat that focused on Anapanasati back in my early 20s and late 20s, sorry. 
And um, after it, I had this, you know, well of sadness arise for a while after I was quite disappointed because I thought people talk about all these fruitings after retreat or things flow and go well and there'd been a little bit of that but then this wow this inexplicable sadness and and what I could say now is um that can be a real seasoning and it it, it can deepen into again into this predicament <laughs> and um, really turbocharge the motivation to free up. Uh, but I also think, and Will is saying, was saying this in a different way, really, that we start to sensitize more and more with our practice. So you might say, unfortunately, <laughs> we can find ourselves more permeable and more able to receive um, the kind of collective suffering in the field. But we also have then the, the tools and the developing skills to work with it. Hmm. Yeah, thank you both so much. It's really helpful. Yeah, both responses are very helpful for me. And yeah, let's let's go into your life stories a, a bit. Um, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to hear about your childhoods and yeah, anything you want to share, uh, maybe a memory from childhood that is arising, that can arise for you now as you put your mind to it. I have one. Um, I mentioned earlier that existential kind of phase that never really stopped when I was about eight or nine, but um, I, my very first memory you could say verbal memory. There were, there were kind of images before I was verbal, but when I was about two and a half or three is actually um, of being in a, a Buddhist temple, um, which for Australian girl is, is quite unusual. <laughs> but my family were based in Singapore and my parents took us to a Buddhist temple. And um, I remember just this awakening fascination. There was someone who's just seemed ancient to me with a very lined face. Um, sitting in what I now know to be in meditation and there was just this beautiful composure and I remember kind of padding up to them and looking up at their face um, like this and they opened their eyes and this wash of love just swept right through me wow. and um, you know they're, they're meta um, as I now know it to be and, and a monk came over and sprinkled us both with water and my mother has said many years later I blame, and she does say blame. <laughs> I blame that priest who sprinkled you with water for becoming a Buddhist. Well, when I went a long way from home to ordain, she's fine with it now. Mm. But I don't, because what really impacted me wasn't the monk sprinkling us with water. It was that that person. It was an old lady um, with her practice and that metta. So that's a very strong, mm. beautiful memory I have that often comes up when I'm sitting. Thank you for sharing. Mm. Willa, anything for you? Oh, as a at that kind of age, I I grew up in a small milling village and kind of backwater in this country. So even a backwater for this backwater. But at that young age, I did a. You know, I just was naturally sitting under trees, meditating essentially. Hmm. So that's why I have this strong sense. We don't know who we are. 
you know, came in with just this love of sitting by myself under trees, just feeling what felt like the love pouring down and really seeing experience falling away from the present moment. So a very, um, a very strong sense of actually what it's like just to be kind of fully embodied, kind of elementally present with other elements, natural elements. So I had, you know, there was a lot of loss in my early childhood and what we fortunately had was beautiful Pururupa. And at that age, I just used to sit and think, well, the Buddha's still happy. Mm. You know, because the Buddha had this beautiful smile. And so from that young age, I always had the sense that somehow the Buddha, amongst all the kind of chaos, felt in his happiness. Mm. So I guess that's a thread that's carried me all the way. It's, you know, it's a possibility of a bit like you're saying in the sadness being actually having this deep well-being and heart that does not tremble, does not shake. So yeah. And we yeah, we have quite different. Um, there are a lot of crossovers for us, but quite different family of origin. And I'm, you know, Willis speaking of suffering there, and I'm thinking I look back on my childhood with great happiness. And I'm thinking about your Buddha Rupa, the first Buddha Rupa that I saw as a child around that age was the reclining Buddha. Mm. And for me, there's that sense of just relax, <laughs> just absolutely was what I picked up at the time. I wasn't aware that that was the Buddha going into Parinibbana, mind you. But um, <laughs> that, that sense of, wow, you know, that's a really powerful statement of just fully relaxing, being fully at ease. And um, I, I took that with me, and that sense in, in Buddhist practice that it's not about um, grinding your teeth and, and striving with will in a way. It certainly takes effort, but there's something about the relaxed ease that stays with me from that first Buddha Rupa. It was massive as well, of course, so it had quite an impact. Mm. And my mother was very, very upset when I went to the monastery. And I said, well, it was all your fault. It was a kind of joke to her because, you know, there are I in this backwater, but we had onions and this Buddha Rupa and David was on the wall. You know, and I said, oh, you know, maybe if I hadn't grown up with these Buddhist <laughs> <laughs> images, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> mm. <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah, thank you both for sharing. Um, a couple of things strike me. One is, you know, along with the globalization of culture and so many things, fashion and whatnot, there's also this idea of beings cultivating across lifetimes, being born into different forms and from different nationalities all around the world and how how, lo how lovely that is, you know? So there's a sense of that. And also in in Eliza's first memory that she shared and, and in Willa's memory as well, they both remind me of this, the story of the Buddha under the rose apple tree 
you know, under a tree as Willow was, surrounded by beings that loved him as Eliza was in, in that temple and that sort of natural, you know, joy and, and presence that arose for him at, at a young age and how even after six years of self-mortification and starvation, he, he could have that memory and see that that joy was blameless. So it's striking to me how similar those memories are. And it reminds me of a memory in my life um, where my mom took me to go see Pocahontas, uh, this, this Disney movie when I was, I think it was just before my fifth birthday. And I just remember in the movie's depiction of these Native Americans uh, being in the forest around nature. And in particular, when Pocahontas is speaking to this spirit that lives in a tree, this elderly wise spirit, and just feeling, as Eliza called it, this washing over in the body of what I now recognize as piti, this the sense of well-being and joy. Um, and that memory too reminds me of the Buddha story under the rose apple tree. And, you know, sort of going into our earlier discussion on the possibility of, of this path and the fruits that it has for us, I think for a lot of people, when they hear that story, at least I presume, when they hear that story of the Buddha's youth under the rose apple tree, there's a sense of, oh, wow, the Buddha had jhana or samadhi as a five-year-old or whatever, you know, whatever age. <laughs> he's the Buddha, you know, like, that's, that's amazing. And of course, there's some truth to that. But to me, it really speaks to how natural all this is, and how how human. Right. This path is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an organic unfolding. Mm. That's right. And our body remembers, mm. 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 you know, but like, like, when I was saying about sitting under the Baldy tree, um, decades ago, my body knows what it's like to sit there yeah. Yeah. You know, at the axis mundi. Yeah. You know, it, uh, we can, it's so powerful as the Buddha describes it, that you can reconnect with these deep embodied memories. And we know trauma has, that's, you know, that's one of the challenges, but the other gift is the body remembers these states of profound freeing up. Mm. and pity, joy, what it means to feel really well and in the right place. Mm. Okay. I, I think that's so important um, in terms of one's own authority and all of that. Where does one get one's authority from in this practice? Yeah, It's not from conferrals from on high, not from a knighthood. It's, it is from embodied awareness. Um, I, I and I, yes, the body remembers the negative, and that's what we hear a lot about. But the body is where the awakening occurs. And I even remember another strong memory as a child when I was about 10 at a primary school in Canberra. So, sort of a little nowheresville, you know, little Catholic primary school. And we were, you know, you, you would sit on the floor at the end of the day, we'd all have to sit up straight. And we'd be watching the clock, waiting till we could be released, you know. And I just remember on this one day, you know, the teacher saying, everyone sit up straight, you know, nice and straight, upright. And and once you're all like that, you can go. So, of course, I, I complied and I sat up straight. And out of nowhere, out of my body, was this knowing one can become noble in this very lifetime. It was just straight off the body. A little kid mm. in Canberra, 
Never heard anything like that before in my life. This is the body in particular postures. And that's why the posture and postures can be so important because they encode knowing that's not personal. That's not at all personal. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the emphasis on in sitting meditation or in any of the postures of finding that kind of sweet place where there's um, a free flow of energy and it's an almost effortless posture. These are real supports. Mm. No, it's not. It's not a mind trip. It's a whole of a whole of being process. Mm. And so, if we, as we, in, you know, entrust to that and check it out, uh, a lot unfolds through the body. Mm. Yeah, it's so helpful. There's there's been a few things emerging in my practice over the last few months, and one of which is just taking a, this posture, uh, which I'm sitting in now on the floor in meditation. Um, just the posture, something happens in the body that for me, I, I, I might question it if I get too analytical about what this might be, you know, according to texts, but there's something in the heart that really knows, like, actually this, that this is something quite important and quite special. And yet it's happening just from the posture and, yeah. and your story actually really allows me to trust that more. Um, and it's also quite striking to think of you as a child <laughs> in that moment to have that sort of come to you. It, it, it's so beautiful. And I have to ask one more question before we go on break. Um, you know, during that retreat, there was a, you know, I remember it was related that Dhamma is energetic. And then this enigmatic phrase from the Buddha of Nibbana is touched by the body or in the body. Yeah. Um, and I'd love it if you could say a little bit about that. And also, if you happen to know the Sutta reference for that, I've been looking for it myself. So it's in the Indriya Sanyutta and the um, Sanyutta Nikaya. I can't remember the actual number. I could get it for you. But the Buddha's talking about the five Indriya, you know, which I meant, we mentioned earlier, and really begins with faith. And then how these other faith or conviction, sometimes how these other indra come into being. It's having a conversation with Sariputta, really. And then as the faculty of the mind collapse the most deeply, most deeply, there it arises this unshakable confidence in the whole process. Yeah? So it's this kind of circle, the deep men's circle. And at the end of that, Sorry, Putra says again and again, one establishes mindfulness again and again. So the sense that this is a process that one keeps, that's not like you can do it like that again and again. And then this enigmatic phrases in there about touching your barn with the body. And it's so important because what it's pointing to is it's this is not an intellectual exercise can't think our way out of this um, predicament of misunderstanding it's actually energetic misunderstanding hmm. it's like you know you've heard me go on so go on all the time about this kind of uprightness uprightness in body uprightness in the chitta in the heart the quality of uju and most of the time we're leaning out, trying to get the 
trying to get away from that here because it's like we're out of balance we're out of our strength and so the the when the body energetically when we're fully embodied fully upright yeah, we're fully capable but we're not capable when we're leaning out wanting this wanting that kind of grasping trying to get away from so it's about this energetic capacity that's actually about the whole thing it's actually the chitta that's liberated the heart not the mind the kind of mano the knowing kind of thinking aspect yeah so it's a the energetic process we're involved in and that's why really knowing the breath as an energetic experience the pranic energy of the breath rather than as a kind of um, mm -hmm. muscular function you know? and we start to realize actually breath brings in life love the whole everything that keeps us being alive comes from the breath fills the whole body and that nothing more is needed yeah so to keep yeah, uh, it's a powerful, it's an embodied process. It's yeah. like it's like in that you know, to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha. I give my, I dedicate my body and life, this body and life. And when you hear, if you hear it at a superficial level, it, it could be like, I dedicate my life to the Queen or the King. You know, it's like oh, when it's time to take up arms, I'll go forth. You know, th this is different, isn't it? And and this is what Will is describing: is that in action dedicating body and life because the breath draws in vitality and life essence and we're channeling that to awakening so we're giving all of that not to thinking about the future or the past but right here right now this energetic experience this life energy is being channeled into awakening so it's a full dedication that includes the body and it's not just this little part of thinking mind that we think is up here somewhere yeah, which is where a lot of people can run aground. Yeah. And that's why, as you're talking, that you know, like sadness, your present work, stuff starts getting freed up yeah. and yeah. released, released out of the out of the physicality, really. Mm. And to not make anything of that, just we just keep cultivating the capacity, the the quality, you know, the kind of right efforts, knowing how to be present, how to pick something up, how to pick it, put it down again, you know, how to really relate to everything from the sense of um, loving kindness and compassion. Mm. And that even when things feel like they're going wrong, is it, it brings to mind that sutta <clears throat> where the Buddhas with the assembly of monastics and Sariputta and Moggallana have died. I know we talked about this mm. in the yeah. And um, I, this is also one of my favorite suttas uh, mm. because it's been so helpful to me. You know, the Buddha acknowledges, you know, to me, this assembly feels empty. Mm. You know, these dear friends and teachers have gone. So he's he, he notices that, he, he feels it. But then he also says, but this has not taken away. You know, the capacity for um, for virtue, for ethical living, you know, for samadhi, for panya. You know, the, the 
that that capacity resides here with each one of us and that the the whole the whole beingness of it is possible even when we've lost our very dearest um, when we're sad when whatever's going on whatever the conditions are it doesn't rob us of the capacity to put one foot after another in this practice that's how we touch nibbana with the body Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching. And if you want to learn more and get some free resources, check out my website, meditatewithranga.com.